This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. to today's show. And I have a very exciting show for you today. Are you interested in supersonic leadership and soaring to leadership heights in your own career? Today, my special guest knows what it's like to fly on supersonic missions. So stay tuned to get some aviation intel for your leadership journey. Now, let me tell you about my special guest. Lori Drowdy served in the U.S. Navy for 10 years and left active duty as a lieutenant commander. She was one of the first female aviators to fly in a combat squadron in the Navy. She completed two deployments to the Persian Gulf, accumulating over 300 carrier landings. After her service in the Navy, Lori led the business education content team at Facebook, She also led the online advertiser communities and the social engagement team at Google. Prior to joining Google, she co-founded a mobile app company and led marketing at PayNearMe and Military.com. Previously, Lori was also a management consultant for Bain & Company. She is now a leadership coach and marketing consultant and the host of the weekly podcast, supersonic leaders and teams. Lori earned a BA in mathematics from the University of San Diego and an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She is a mom of two teenagers and two cats, a certified yoga instructor and artist, and a published author of the book, She's Just Another Navy Pilot. So join me in welcoming Lori Drowdy. Lori, it's so great to have you here on the show today. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Karen. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so delighted. Your background is just phenomenal. And there's just so much about it that I just can't wait to dive in and learn a little bit more. Exactly. So Lori, let me ask you this first question, which is, what does it really mean to be one of the first women aviators to fly in a combat squadron. We know that there were already other female combat pilots. They weren't necessarily, however, in combat squadrons. So tell us about the uniqueness of that assignment. It was a time where other women that I served with benefited from many other women who had come before us. So even though I was one of the first women to fly in a combat squadron, there had been female naval aviators. They had flown in support squadrons and they had flown as instructor pilots, but no one had actually, you know, as they like to say, dropped a bomb in anger on anybody or shot somebody. But after the first Gulf War, female pilots had been shot at And those lines were really starting to get blurred between support and actual combat. And so 
when President Clinton lifted the ban on women flying in combat in 1993, I was already at my first fleet squadron flying the F-18 Hornet as a support pilot. So what that meant was I would pretend to be a missile. So I got to fly really fast and really low, and it was super fun. And I knew that I was helping train other pilots, train the fighter pilots who were going to go out and have to face missiles. And I was very happy doing it. I never joined the military or uh, went into naval aviation with any other hope other than just doing my job well. Then I found myself in the middle of a really big change in the Navy, and I was very supportive of it. But I wasn't one of those kids that goes to a Blue Angel show and says, oh, I want to do that when I grow up. I I kind of fell into naval aviation accidentally. (laughs) So I think being part of that first group was an incredible honor. There weren't that many of us. There were 18 of us women on the Abraham Lincoln when we deployed in uh, 1994. And it was, you know, it was a very challenging time. Um, Tailhook had happened a couple of years prior, which was a a big controversy in naval aviation. And even though the law, um, the, the ban had been lifted, a lot of people weren't happy about women flying in combat. And I think a lot of men who were in naval aviation felt it wasn't appropriate, or I think they had to reckon with what what they do as a job and is a woman capable of doing that. And so it was a really challenging time, but I felt very fortunate to be able to be part of that first cadre because it was amazing. It, I, I just felt so lucky to be able to do that type of job and to serve my country in that way. And so I, when I look back, I just, I look back at it with a great deal of gratitude and and pride it was incredible pressure to be there during that time because of feeling like I was representing all women and having to deal with that pressure, I think at a you know fairly young age was an amazing experience. So for all of it, I'm incredibly grateful and, um, and thankful that I got to do it. That's wonderful, Lori. Let me ask you a little bit more about that because you mentioned tail hooks. Some people may or may not remember, but of course there mm-hmm. were sort of like these, I'll call them gender issues, which, you know, <laughs> were in the military. And yeah. you sort of mentioned the fact that sometimes the men weren't all that happy that women were also in these roles now. Mm-hmm. So say a little bit more about what it was like to be in that pioneering first cohort group of women to take on this job that previously had been done by all men. Right. I think uh, what helped me was just having a lot of empathy. These men were used to being in a certain environment, conducting themselves in a certain way, and having incredibly high standards for themselves. Those were things that were not unique to men. So uh, there were women and who could fly, and there were women who could be incredibly professional as well. And there were plenty of women who could go out and party hard as well. So, you know, all these things that you associate or that typically are thought of as being a naval aviator stereotype, I don't think that they're necessarily unique to men. So during that time, though, because it was such a big change, I think that having some sensitivity to what the men were going through was helpful for me just because I could imagine or try to imagine anyway what what it must have been like to have had this huge change, you know, really demanded of them. So I approached my interactions with that perspective of not so much of how can I coddle them or how can I change my behavior to make them accept me. It was more, how can I honor the things that are really important about naval aviation and ensure that I'm safe and that I'm a good pilot and that I'm you know part of a team and all these things that I think are, are really the core values of naval aviation. 
And again, are things that I don't think are exclusive to men. So I was very sensitive about my, I didn't wear makeup on the ship. I didn't wear perfume. I grew up in the, in the Marine Corps. My dad was in the Marine Corps. And so even though we were a pretty conservative family, I knew how to, how to swear. So (laughs) in being in the Navy, you know, we do that a little bit. So I felt like I was able to fit in as much as I could, but also it was, you know, very clear. I'm not a guy, I'm not a man. And, but I couldn't change that. I could really just try to be the best naval aviator that I could be and the best professional officer I could be. And for most people, most men, that was enough and that and that was acceptable and that was what they wanted. Some men, I think still, it didn't matter. They wanted it to stay all male. And, and I understand that. I disagree, but I, I understood where they're coming from. So I think just having some empathy for their point of view helped smooth some of those rough edges as we integrated into the into the squadrons. Yeah, I think in almost any kind of an organization, you're always going to have those people who are not the early adopters, so to speak, to change, and they're going to resist anything that's a little bit different. But I want to highlight three things that you said that I think are really significant. You mentioned the fact that you went in with an attitude of empathy, not just, okay, in your face and, you know, tough Uh, too bad, who cares, but really understanding that this was a major change for those men who are now have to be welcoming their female counterparts. And so you went in with empathy. I think that's significant. And you also went in with this notion of the values of the Navy, understanding what those were, leading from that values base and just determining that you, in fact, were going to live up to those values. And I also would say just acknowledging what that culture was and understanding you weren't going to be able to feminize that culture necessarily. And so maybe didn't overemphasize the feminine aspect, yet at the same time understood that you were a woman. I think that's significant. So thank you for saying that. I mean, it certainly takes me back to my army days. I mean, back in the Mm -hmm. army, the army is kind of like a man's world too, you know, in a lot of ways. And during the time that I was serving, there weren't a whole lot of women around. And so it's, it's, a, it's a unique kind of an experience to be a woman in the, the armed services, and particularly in your case, in a combat role, which I wasn't in, but you know, still we have those things in common. So you mentioned, because I want to ask you a little bit about the backstory. You mentioned that your father was in the military, and you also mentioned that you didn't have particular designs yourself on being a Navy pilot. So what is the backstory? What did you want to be as a child? How did you end up in the Navy? What what happened? It's so funny. Oh, I should also mention, um, not only was my dad a career Marine Corps officer, but my mother was a Marine officer for a year as well. So, I mean, it was basically genetic. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I was going both. to the military one way or the other. You know, it was always expected of me and my brothers that we would serve. When I got to college, I... I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I had, when I was growing up, I really enjoyed dance and performing and art. And so I had thought, well, maybe I'll do something in that industry or along those lines. But my parents were highly encouraging me to try Navy ROTC. And so I went to the University of San Diego and started at Navy ROTC. And at that point, I just thought, I would become an unrestricted line officer and hopefully travel and see more of the world. But my freshman year during the holiday break, I went on a field trip with a few other midshipmen from my ROTC unit. And we visited Miramar. Back then it was Naval Air Station Miramar. Now it's a Marine Corps Air Base. We went to El Toro and Tustin Air Bases, which are no longer (laughs) in existence. 
I just was fascinated. I had never been exposed to naval aviation before. Um, and this was before the movie Top Gun came out. So I had no idea. <laughs> and we talked with the pilots and, you know, they're flying everything from jets to helicopters to fixed wing aircraft. I just thought it was so cool. It looked like it was really challenging and the pilots all just loved what they did. I hadn't seen such passion from somebody about their job in a long time. I mean, my dad loved the Marine Corps, loved being an infantry officer, but I just had never seen aviators or talked with them. But I also noticed that they were all dudes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I said, well, you know, this all looks really cool, but I don't, I mean, as a woman, am I even allowed to do this? And they said, well, you can't fly in combat, but you know, you could be an instructor pilot. Um, or you can be a combat support pilot and train pilots. And I said, wow, that sounds cool. So when I got back to school, I switched to my major. I was actually, I think, either a theater or a poli-sci major. I switched it over to mathematics and I um, signed up for the aviation club and just went totally 100% all for it. And then got into flight school and <laughs> just the rest worked. is history. <laughs> the rest is history. I mean, it was it was one of those things where I worked so hard and I I really really wanted it and it was an incredibly rewarding job and team to be on. Everyone, you know, everyone had to really pull their weight and do their best and work together. And, and I, th I felt like it really helped prepare me for a lot of the roles that I had in the civilian world as well. But yeah, it was just funny though. I mean, I went to flight school with so many men who were the stereotypical, you know, four-year-old boy at the air show, seeing the blue angels saying, I want to do that when I grew up. And that didn't happen for me until I was what, 18. <laughs> so yeah, I was, a, I was a late comer to naval aviation, but still very enthusiastic. Well, what I love about the backstory that you're telling us is a couple of things. One, because your mother and father both were in the Marines, that was sort of like some early preparation. That was a foundation. You understood <laughs> military life. You were expected to serve. We weren't afraid of it in that sense. And when you saw these aviators, it was their passion that really inspired you. And that really says yeah. a lot about what we can do as leaders today in terms of inspiring other people when they see us really enjoying our jobs, enjoying our roles and what we are doing every day. That was really huge. And because of that passion, you said you worked really hard. You did all the next steps, being in the aviation club, all of this to really make it happen. So I think that's really a significant point. Thanks, Dr. Karen. You know, I what you said about showing that passion, I think is so important because I had several times as a leader in tech companies where as a manager, I had to really be careful about how much I complained about how hard I was working because I wanted to make sure that people on my teams would aspire to be managers as well. And if I'm not modeling good behavior as a manager and finding ways to you know find that balance in my life and model that, then I was really worried that no one else was going to want to develop it into a manager as well. So yeah, it was definitely something to be cognizant of. Absolutely. In fact, I love that sort of snippet of a story there because sometimes we forget we've got to show the upside, you know, yes. what we do. There's, <laughs> there are downsides in everything, but you've got to yeah. showcase and show the upside as well. So right. let me go back to this because you were saying that there was learning that you had while in the Navy that really helped to carry you through your career, even later when you were at Google mm -hmm. and Facebook. Tell us a little bit about what was that number one thing that you actually learned? Wow. Um, you know, it's something that I think is so critical in the military, which is take care of your people. 
And I think people hear that and they think, oh, that means you have to look out for them. You have to understand what motivates them. You need to support them, you know, have their back. You need to make sure you're developing their skills and, you know, having regular one-on-ones, all those types of things that I think are typically what come to mind when you think about how to take care of people. It's, it's you know, recognizing their humanity, recognizing they have lives outside of work and really knowing them well enough to know how to really bring out the best in them. But I think the hard thing for managers, at least it was really hard for me, is that taking care of your people also sometimes means that when they're not doing well and they're not performing and it's not a good fit, it's letting them go quickly so that they can go and find what they're really passionate about. That's difficult. (laughs) I found it to be very difficult. I always, I'm such an optimist. I always want to believe that people are going to figure things out and they're going to, um, you know, or that as a manager, I'd be able to help them and support them and get them to a point where they're doing the job they need to do. But it's really tough when that doesn't happen. However, if you are truly taking care of your people, um, it's not just your people within your team and in that job, it's taking care of them as a person and supporting them to make sure they're they're in a place where they feel appreciated and they can do the job well. Oh, absolutely. And I think another piece of that, Lori, is that not only are you taking care of that particular person on the job, but also the rest of the people on the job who may see and experience that this person is not a good fit, and that will affect the entire team as well. So it's really a win-win when you're looking at someone, you can see their gifts and you can see, oh, this person is a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't even know it, but when they finally come to grips with it, they can look back and they might even come back to say, Lori, thank you so much that you had that talk with me and helped yeah. me to do what I really am called to do, so to speak, you yeah. know? Yeah. So that's yeah. really significant. So now, Lori, we've been talking about how you are a leader and you are a role model for many other people. So who is your leadership role model? Tell us about that. <laughs> I would say I have two actually. And Similar to a conversation you and I had, Dr. Karen, my role models are my parents. My dad, uh, you know, is, I think, the stereotypical leader in the sense that he's the one out front. You know, he's the, the Marine Corps officer who's out giving orders, you know, taking care of his people, looking after everybody and making the difficult decisions. So he's that leader leading out front. My mother is the leader who's leading from behind. And I always really admired just her strength. I mean, having to to move three rugrats every three years or at least every three years to, you know, a different military bases and often by herself because my dad would would go ahead like the strength that's necessary for that and the leadership she had to provide to me and my brothers. I I feel like that's often unrecognized. I mean, thankfully my dad completely recognizes it. That's why they're still married after, you know, many many years. But no, I both of my parents were really leadership role models for me because they knew how to get things done, they knew how to influence people, they knew how to take care of people. And I learned so much from them that I believe helped me not just in the military, you know, from their military leadership examples, but then also in the civilian world. 
Yeah, and I really thank you for acknowledging the leadership that it takes to run a household. And particularly yes. when your spouse may be gone a lot of the time, yeah. people forget what that's like. As a military spouse, you have to be very autonomous in many ways and very independent, able to make yeah. decisions. Sometimes the input of your spouse who may not be available. So that's really significant that you highlighted that aspect of it from your mother as well. So now, Lori, I know that you've worked on many teams, both military and civilian, and also in your current role as a leadership coach, you see many team members and team leaders amongst your clients. So first of all, tell us what is supersonic leadership? So I love the term supersonic leadership because people think of supersonic and they think of probably one or two things. One is the awesome song by JJ Fad in the 90s, which I love. <laughs> but the second is this concept of a jet going supersonic faster than the speed of sound, that sonic boom that happens. And it's very striking and it's like, wow, you know, faster than ever. But what's really interesting about going supersonic is that when you're on the inside of the cockpit, you don't get that huge supersonic boom. You don't get that wow moment. It's very much, you're just, you're getting the work done. You're, you see the, you know, the mock indicator go from 0.98 to 0.99 to 1.0. And it's not super exciting, honestly, when you're inside the cockpit. And so what I liked about that term for my podcast was that leadership and especially naval naval aviation a lot of times it seems very people think top gun they think sexy they think all these things about naval aviation and it's a lot of hard work and it's not always glamorous like what the movie makes it sound like in fact it's really almost never glamorous <laughs> it's just a lot of hard work um, but it's incredibly rewarding and so because i was a naval aviator i thought supersonic would be a great name for many reasons but because of that dual definition, I found that for leadership in particular, it was a great way. It, it was how I think of it often. Leadership is just, it's a lot of hard work and it's very fulfilling. And sometimes, you know, people look at CEOs and think, ooh, you know, like, wow, they, they've got this, you know, amazing life and they get paid a lot of money or things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, the CEOs are doing a lot of incredibly difficult things in that role. So yeah. So I just, I thought that would be a lot of fun and definitely the, the aviation aspect of it, I, I found endearing and, and just relevant, oh, yeah. I think, for leadership. Actually, I love the sound of it. It sounds exciting. I love what you said that when you're in the cockpit, you're not so much aware of the supersonic aspect or the, the boom that happens in all of this. And it reminds me of what it's like for a fish when a fish is in water. I mean, that's the mm, fish's yes. you know, natural habitat. And so you're saying you become sort of a part of that environment in, in a sense, and you're just doing your job and what's necessary. Yeah. It's very special if you're looking from the outside and from the inside, you put it on like your everyday kind of cloak to go to work and do what you need to do. So yeah. I think that's also an interesting way to kind of think about it and also to look at it. So tell us, Lori. What are the top reasons why some teams have difficulty achieving that supersonic performance? Mm, I would say there are many, many things that happen to teams that keep them from being supersonic teams. But I, I would say probably the two that come to mind are teams that don't trust each other and have that feeling they're going to be looking out for each other and have each other's backs. 
And then also teams that don't feel appreciated. So mm-hmm. one of the main reasons why people leave a company or leave a role is because they don't feel like their manager appreciates them. And the manager's not seeing the work that they do or not showing appreciation for it or even acknowledging it. And I think that makes sense to me. I think we're all human beings and we don't expect to be fond over, but I think that most of us would, you know, appreciate having really hard work acknowledged or even just, you know, a thank you. (laughs) And unfortunately, so many teams don't get that. And the appreciation aspect, I am a, a huge believer in. I don't think you can say thank you enough to a team. I think people know when you don't mean it. And I would never advocate for inauthentic gratitude, but I do feel that managers in general can be more appreciative of the work that that teams are doing. And, And they can show it in many different ways, but just that appreciation in general. And then the issue of trust is something that Google actually did a study about this and the their top performing teams, the number one enabler for a top performing team was psychological safety. So feeling that they could trust the other people on their team, they could trust their manager and that they would be um, looked after. So being able to work together in a team and feel that other people are being honest with you and that they're doing their best as well and that you're communicating well and you know dealing with issues as soon as they come up, you know, just establishing that base foundational level of trust is so critical for teams to have peak performance. Yes, I would go on to say that people are really missing an opportunity when they don't appreciate their people. And the productivity is so much higher when people feel appreciated and when you are actually feeling and resourcing the trust in the organization, like the whole concept of psychological safety. We have talked about that on this podcast before because we certainly valued what Google put out, you know, in that article. So now, Lori, you've been a career pioneer, I'll say, working in jobs and areas that maybe aren't common for most women. So what advice and counsel might you offer to women today about the leadership opportunities that are out there and how to succeed even in some non-traditional jobs? The first thing I would say is if you see a job that looks interesting, that you think you are halfway qualified for based on what you're reading in the job applications, apply. So many women don't apply until they feel like they meet 100% of the requirements. And I can tell you as a hiring manager, many times I've put out job descriptions where I'm giving my best estimate of what I think I need in a role. And I've had candidates apply who don't meet all of the prerequisites, but when I'm talking with them, it's so clear that they are incredibly passionate about the work and they have enough skills to be successful in the role and they get hired. So I would encourage women to take that. I wouldn't even say it's a risk. I would just say, believe in yourself, believe in your capabilities. When I thought about how so many men will apply for jobs when they've got maybe half of the prerequisites and they get those jobs, it made me think, well, why are women doing that more? So so I always really encourage women to go for it with those roles. I mean, the worst they're going to do is say no. The best outcome is that you get the job and it's something that you're really excited about and you'll learn from, you'll learn something doing that job if you're coming into it without all the prerequisites. I remember at Google, 
Um, Laszlo Bach was talking with us. He was the former head of people and it was all senior managers. And he looked out at all of us and he said, you know, I feel like I could probably put any of you into a senior level position here and you'd do fine. So even if you're a marketing person, I feel like I could put you into a finance role and you would figure it out. I was a little surprised, but then I could see what he was talking about. Like when you have leaders who know how to motivate people and how to create the relationships necessary to get the work done and remove the obstacles for the people on their team, you don't necessarily need to be a technical expert in a particular area if you have the technical experts on your team. Now, that's not always the case. There are definitely some leadership roles where you need to have the background and experience. But for many, many of the roles there, that was something that um, you know they, they needed good leaders and good managers. And my dad has a saying, experts on tap, leaders on top. So basically, you, you know, the leader is the one who's ultimately accountable and responsible for the work of the team, but you tap into experts as you need to get that work done. Yeah. And I think another thing that I've noticed sometimes in being a hiring manager, somebody may come, they may not exactly meet the job description. However, they're a great person. You see the gifts and talents that they have and you create a role for the person. You find yes. a place for them <laughs> in your organization. So when women don't apply, they're not even considered. So you're absolutely right to encourage women to apply because we don't know what might happen when they do. So that's really yeah. a great counsel on your part to say. Now, you know, Lori, we've been in this season of the pandemic for a while, yeah. and it's made work very challenging for people. What would you say are the hidden gifts or unique opportunities mm. for better leadership practices during this time? From what I've seen um, uh, with a lot of my clients who are working in tech in particular, it's really challenging because it's been more difficult to hold that line between work and home because they're working from home. And so there have been assumptions made that, oh, you don't commute. So we can put a meeting during that time or, you know, we can basically get more of your time. And I think that one of the silver linings is that I think it's brought to light that people really have to be firmer about their boundaries between work and home and be clear, you know, better communication with managers and with teams about what's going on. I also feel like it's been this really interesting glimpse into people's lives and that brings out the humanity in within our teams. If you are having a meeting with somebody, a Zoom call or a Google Meet call or what have you, and their young child runs up from the background and you know needs something. To me, that is a reminder that, hey, we, especially as managers, we think, oh, this is just about work and we need to focus on work. And it's a reminder like, oh, yes, this person is a dad, a mom, and has a life that they're dealing with. Like everyone's dealing with so much these days. And so I think that the pandemic has made us really think about what's most important to us in our lives and also recognize that we really don't know what the future holds. I mean, I don't think that the people who study <laughs> diseases and epidemics, I think it's epidemiologists, besides them, I don't think any of us really anticipated a pandemic this year. And it's a reminder that we just don't know what the future holds. And that's why it's so important to be in roles and living lives and you know, spending time with people that matter because we just don't know what will happen tomorrow. So I would say that one silver lining of the pandemic is it has forced that perspective where we hopefully recognize that 
the future is unknown and that it's important to take one day at a time and to really be doing the things that we care about with the people that we love. Absolutely. And I would certainly say that part of the definition of a crisis is that we don't know what's really coming and we, mm. we can't always anticipate it. What we can yeah. know is that there will be more crises. And so if we learn from this one, we're better prepared for the next one. And I like what you said about really focusing on what's really important and paying attention to those relationships at home. So that brings me to a question for you, which is how are you leveraging your life and career experiences in how you're raising your children? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's such a great question. My kids are, are so tired, I think, of hearing me talk about, you know, you can do anything, you can be any, you, you just have to, you know, believe in yourself and practice. And, you know, I've really tried to instill this growth mindset with my children that people might have natural inclinations or talents in a particular area, but practicing things over and over is what make people really good at things. And so I try to teach them the importance of hard work and practice, but also finding things to do that you really love. And I have not forced them into anything. I'm thinking, are there any things that I've made them do as far as school classes or activities? I really haven't. I've, they're so tired of hearing me tell them that they should learn how to code. And I think that if, if you're a teenager in Silicon Valley, you probably hear this from your parents, your teachers, everybody, and they're, they're, neither one of them is interested in that. I, neither one of them is interested in flying, which I'm uh, a little bit surprised about. But, you know, again, like I didn't really, I wasn't interested until I was 18. So who knows? But yeah, I think encouraging my kids to, to try a lot of different things, see what they really enjoy doing and what excites them, and then practice that and, and do it as much as possible so they get really good at it. And later on, they'll probably really appreciate the fact that you've said to them, they can be whatever they want to be. That's the thing. <laughs> so, oh, I hope so. Well, I'm glad we have this recorded so I can play that for them later. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, not again, not again. <laughs> so now, Lori, your, your book is called She's Just Another Navy Pilot. Tell us about yeah. your book and specifically about that title. What's the meaning of that title? The reason I wrote the book was after our first deployment to the Persian Gulf, we came back and there was a woman who had did not have a, a good experience during our deployment. She was dealing with some amazingly difficult situations and a lot of pressure, but I didn't feel like her negative experience was really representative of all the women. And so I wanted to be able to tell my story. And I, I had a, a very positive experience. It was not easy, but it definitely, I felt like I had been been treated fairly and that, you know, I wanted there to be another perspective out in the, in the public domain. So I had kept a journal during my deployment and I thought that maybe I could use that as a basis for a book. So my ex-husband's brother is a journalist and a, an author. And so he helped me take that book and turn it, um, sorry, take the journal and turn it into a book. And he encouraged me to put more, I, I, I really was approaching it as, I just want to write a book about what it's like to you know, deploy on an aircraft carrier for six months, because it's a really unique environment. And most people don't get to see that. And I thought, people might be interested to learn more about what it's like. And he thankfully encouraged me to make it a more personal story and talk about my own challenges and my relationships and just to help, I think, make the story a little more personal and interesting for people to read. 
So when we wrote the book, you know, we're trying to think of a good title and the, um, <laughs> the publisher wanted us to call it carrier women. And I said, that's going to, then people are going to call it like little carrier women. <laughs> that's all we could think of. So I said, well, you know, I just, the whole point of writing this book was to share this positive experience. And my whole goal during those deployments was to just be another naval aviator, not to be thought of as a female aviator or be, or to stand out or to be different. Like I just wanted to be part of that team. And so I thought of the title, she's just another Navy pilot. And I liked it because you still know it's a woman because of the she's and technically the term is naval aviator, but I just felt like it was catchy enough and it got across the point I wanted to make, which was my goal is to just do my job and be part of this team. And I think I was successful with that, but I wanted that to be reflected in the title as well. You know, I think that's funny because clearly being a naval aviator and particularly during the time you served as a woman in a combat squadron, it's not really just anything. It's quite unique. So you are that supersonic person in the cockpit, not knowing how great it really is from the outside. So I just want to, you know, highlight that. So Lori, where can people find your book? Where can they get it? It's on Amazon. You can search under Lori Drowdy or she's just another Navy pilot. It's available in paperback and on Kindle. And there might still be a few hard copies left, but uh, or hardbacks left, but it actually went out of print a few years ago and I ended up getting a second print via paperback. So yeah, so Amazon is the best place to find it. Wonderful. And what about your podcast? Uh, what's the name of sure. it and where can they listen to your podcast? So the name of it is the Supersonic Leaders and Teams podcast. And you can find it at, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, or any of the channels that have podcasts, or you can go to www.supersonicshow.com. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And what about the website to reach you? Is it still that website or a different one? You can contact me through the supersonic show, supersonicshow.com website, or you can also go to lauriedrowdy.com. And it's L-O-R-E-E-D-R-A-U-D-E.com. Yes, it's a good thing you spelled that because that's not a typical <laughs> Neither spelling. Neither one of my names. Right, exactly. <laughs> so people probably wouldn't guess that. So Laurie, as we're wrapping up today, what words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? Mm. One of my favorite pieces of advice from my dad is this too shall pass. I think people typically think about it in situations that are not positive, like in difficulties or, or traumatic experiences. But I actually think about it when things are awesome as well, just because I want it, it forces me to be present and really stay in today and not think about the future or dwell on the past. But just thinking this too shall pass is a good reminder that, that we don't know what tomorrow will, will hold and we should just really enjoy and appreciate today. Oh, wonderful. Lori, thank you so much for being my guest today. You're welcome. And for sharing those words of wisdom. And I'm going to say to my audience out there, the Voice of Leadership audience, you heard it yourself from Lori Drowdy to live each day with passion and purpose, to recognize that this is the day that you have. We don't know if you'll have another day. So, this too shall pass, 
you won't hear that in the same way again in the future. So even the good things that happen, enjoy them while you have them. So thank you, everyone. I'll see you next time. Did you know that teams do the bulk of the work in successful organizations? And for this reason, it's very important to build and develop your teams. And first, you might want to know where you are in the process. So I invite you to take the complimentary team assessment to identify your current strengths and also your learning opportunities in launching and developing high-performance teams that get dynamic organizational results. So go to my website, www.transleadership.com, and you'll see on the homepage, there's a brown bar that says, take the high-performance team assessment. You'll find it just under the running photographs. Click there and get your results. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.